And the facts is this, boys. There's three sides to every story. There's my side, your side, and the truth. Hi, and welcome to The Curb Podcast. My name is Andrew F. Pierce, and this podcast is recorded in Bulu, Perth, Western Australia. Sovereignty never ceded. Filmmaker, critic, and cultural historian Bill Masoulis has forged a career as, in the truest sense of the word, an independent filmmaker in Australia. His filmography spans over decades, with his works showcasing a keen sense of curiosity for the world around him. Whether it be Greece, Melbourne, or in his latest film, My Darlings in Stirling, the humble city of Stirling in the Adelaide Hills. In the following interview, recorded ahead of the world premiere at the Adelaide Film Festival, Bill talks about the inspiration for My Darling Ed Sterling, while also touching on what it means to be an Australian filmmaker working right now. We also touch on that dirty word, genre films, and what that means when it comes to creating a, a musical in Adelaide. I've long respected and looked up to Bill for his work alongside Chris Luskery as they champion Australian independent cinema with their ongoing screenings under the banner of Unknown Pleasures. All the while, Bill has fostered support for alternative Australian cinema with his website Pure Shit. It was a pleasure to be able to talk with Bill about his work, both as a filmmaker and a writer. Here's a clip from My Darling in Sterling, followed by the interview with Bill Mazoulis. Let's get talking about your wonderful film. Thank you so much for it. Yeah, sure. it's yeah. a delight. <laughs> oh, thank you. Yeah, it's. I often talk to people about like what Australian films should be doing more of. You know, the term boundary pushing is kind of a, a strange word because one person's idea of what a boundary is is not a boundary elsewhere. But in Australia, it seems that musicals and and singing and a little bit of dancing as well, all of that is a boundary that people don't want to go past. And so it was really comforting to be able to experience your mm-hmm. film and just be in a world where singing was the entire thing. Uh, so, you know, congratulations. Thank you for bringing a oh. musical to life in Australia. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, thanks for your response. And, yeah, so far, like um, the few people who've seen it so far, not even cast and crew have seen it, I've got some pretty good responses. You might have seen Adrian Martin's review on his website. And, and yeah, I, I guess it's that thing of, you know, if Australian cinema tackles genre, it, it goes to um, thrillers and horrors and, and, of course, with limited budgets as well. So I guess the musical isn't valued because it's uh, seen as old-fashioned, and uh, which is something I tap into a little bit with my film, I believe, anyway. Uh, intentionally too, as a, almost like a provocation. Uh, I know um, the person who's uh, a, a friend of mine who's writing for Senses of Cinema on the film. He, I was talking to him a little bit about Australian musicals, and and you know he could barely come up with a list at all. And I don't know, I don't know too many myself. Obviously, there's obvious uh, commercial examples, 
But um, I saw um, Brand New Day, yeah, which she made about 12 years ago, I think, in 09. And that's that's like a musical that's uh, got a certain kind of um, joy to it, which uh, which I've I appreciated. But, yeah, other than that, it's, yeah, it's not done much, yeah. It's often presented in, a, in an indie capacity. I think the last one that off the top of my head was Emo the Musical, which was this very low-budget oh, yeah. independent mm. film. And that's, that's got its own kind of energy in itself, uh, which, you know, is nice to see. But it's it would be lovely if we saw more of them. There is, I understand, this limitation of, of trying to get songs written and people who can sing and all this kind of stuff. But... Mm-hmm. You wrote all the songs yourself, and and we'll talk about the singing momentarily. But I'm curious. I mean, they're not traditional songs because it's it's sung dialogue. But I'm curious if you can talk about what that looks like on a script. On level. a script level, I, I kind of really let the music uh, guide me, and so I I basically obviously had the idea of the film in my head and the emotions of the characters. And then uh, I think you probably know all the music is sourced from the free music archive. So it's all online and it's all free to use, copyright free and everything. And so uh, I I was a bit sceptical at first thinking, uh, okay, what kind of quality music will there be on the free music archive? But I was really surprised and and I found a number of tracks I could work with and and then basically tailored them to each scene or each emotional kind of development of the of the script and and wrote the lyrics uh, over the top and it was good fun i had really good fun i got singers in i got eight different singers for the eight different characters and then i just kind of did it all myself it, it's really kind of diy cinema in many regards um I bought myself a, like a, a music setup, an audio interface uh, box and speakers and, you know, obviously software. And for under a thousand bucks, I've, you know, I've set myself up now to record music. I just did it for the singers, but it was really great fun kind of mixing it and everything. So, With the, the actors on, on set as well, they're obviously, they're saying words and things like that. And you've overlaid the, the singers on top of them. Did you record the singers first of all, or did you perform it and then get them to sing to it? Yes. The singers were all recorded first. And so the actors basically had the music with the guide track. Uh, I mean, I could have left my own guide track on uh, for the actors. And, and that's, I had a guide track for the singers so they could understand the phrasing and where, you know, where exactly in the music uh, each line went. But I wouldn't have uh, <laughs> uh, put put that on the actors during shooting. So I managed to, yeah, record all the singers first and, and then the actors were miming along to the singers. I don't know. I mean, part of me does want to see the bill cut of hearing all the singers. <laughs> you know, it would be interesting to say the least. Well, yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It's, I, I guess some filmmakers, like I know Chantal Ackerman for her film Golden 80s, she had a, a documentary called The 80s um, just a, a year or two uh, before Golden 80s was made. And and that had, I think, you know, rehearsals of the singers and probably she herself was in there singing as well. So, <laughs> But no, there's nothing like that on the horizon. Yeah. Now, it's, it's inspired by Umbrellas of Schoenberg as well, which is quite a, a monumental film. If you can take me back to when you first saw that film, what was the, your experience like watching that film for the first wow, time? Wow, I probably would have first seen it, you know, when I was quite young in my, like, early 20s at the Melbourne Cinematheque and 
I remember at the time seeing, you know, other um, Demi films like Lola and, uh, well, especially Lola, his debut and the Bay of Angels. And, but yeah, Umbrellas was really kind of there. I, I'm not sure I, I responded to it with curiosity. I was, even though I've always been into music all my life, uh, in terms of, you know, pop slash rock slash hip hop slash punk, whatever, I've never really been into musicals as such. And uh, with some of the short films I started making on Super 8 in the 80s and 90s, I would take a, a, a kind of, you know, a song, a, a, a known mainstream song, and put some images to it. And I enjoyed doing that. But I never really saw, you know, film musicals. It took me a little while, maybe 15, 20 years to really understand the musical and feel it kind of deeply and uh and 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 it was really re-watching umbrellas maybe about 10 15 years ago that i thought wow this is just a great film and and then more recently i did you know more kind of proper research into jacques demi and all his other musicals and i thought wow this director is really interesting um with um, these kind of music related and fairy tale related films that he's done like donkey skin and and a few others and and my wife when she first saw umbrellas uh, she couldn't stand it she turned it off after you know 20 minutes because it was you know too pink and too colorful there was too much going on but then she watched it a second time on her own without my expectant kind of eyes on her and she just loved it and, and i think jacques demi back in 1964 might have been wondering well, this isn't the film I wanted to make. I wanted to do a bigger budgeted uh, spectacular with dancing in it. And I'm sure that he himself didn't know how much uh, the audience would kind of go along with it. So there's this, you know, magical element of uh, setting it in the everyday, which, you know, it can be a, uh, it's a bit of a risk, I guess. And But obviously, as we know, more modern filmmakers have done this more and more. And and I think, yeah, it was a real kind of hit for him. So I don't know. I just find its combination of magic and melancholy just really extraordinary. And I've tried to capture that a little bit uh, in my film as well. I, I love that you, you know, you've seen it obviously in the Melbourne Cinematheque and then years later you're experiencing it again. And I know for me, like there are films that I watched 20 years ago that my experience of it, you know, I was maybe too young or didn't have enough life yeah. experience in appreciating it then. And then you get older and you're like, oh, I see it in a completely different manner. Mm. And there is this beautiful line that you've got in the film, which is, we'll have a set of emotions that will be with us forever. <laughs> you've got the reference. And I just love that. You know, it's yeah, a reference I just to a think famous that is, film. Yeah. Delivered in such a beautifully Australian manner, though, <laughs> that it, it feels yours like it feels like it's yeah, your own can you talk about the inspiration for that as well for that particular line or just any well, kind of line well that that particular line but that emotion i guess is the the sense of you know being in love feeling that that sense of joy and feeling that sense of feeling like you're falling into yes. something you're finding a job that you're loving for the first time you're finding somebody that mm. you're loving for the first time that sense of new discovery of joy and love yeah and bliss is something that we carry on and it becomes a touchstone in some it, it, it does and yeah. yeah and and in my film i guess uh, apart from the characters uh, experiencing it you do get the sense that they're uh, self-aware uh, on it because there's a another couple of songs where uh the girl you know says lines like 
we'll explore every mountain, we'll, we'll climb the highest heights, we'll, and it's kind of like she's stepping out of herself to imagine what her life is going to be like in love and, and in the next years, you know, having adventures together with the guy and, and all this. So there's this kind of self-awareness that you're going through something rather than just uh, living it. And, and when she says, you know, we'll have a set of emotions, Again, she's projecting into the future and imagining how it's going to be like. And so that's an interesting point. Yeah. I, I just find that beautiful optimism there and that love, the presentation of love. Again, it's we're talking about musicals and how they're presented on screen in Australia. And I don't think as well as musicals that romance and love is really shown all that often on screen in a beautiful manner. Like it's yes. always done in such a dramatic yes. way. And there is a dramatic conclusion here, but it's, it's that moment of, of pure bliss and, and positivity and joy that they have together is so tangible yes. and it's so refreshing. Right, right. <laughs> you know, we don't get to see that so often. I'm pleased yeah. you, you yeah. see that and you've responded like that because that's, yeah, that's one of the things for me is the kind of cynical, you know, postmodern or post-postmodern age or whatever you want to call it that we're currently in where, you know, everyone's, you know, hip, everyone's a troll, everyone's a commentator. So I tried to basically pair everything back to uh, an original kind of innocence and, and joy for the characters. And and, and it's really interesting, the, um, one of the musicals I saw recently, which was amazing, was uh, Annette by Leo Carrix. And and he also plays with that, that some scenes seem a little corny and they're like too simple, you know, with their declarations of love. And so uh, as I was watching his film, I'd already written my songs and I was preparing to record the singers. So it was, I thought, wow, there's something that good on him. He's, even though he's seen as this kind of misanthropic filmmaker almost, you know, that he could do that as well. So... I, I'm, I find that that's so interesting as well, how we present corniness on screen. Mm. Like there is this sense of cringe that's associated with yes. it, but it's if it's delivered with authenticity or believability, then that cringe aspect is gone because there's aspects of my life. I know that I, if I stepped outside of it, I'll go, well, that's very corny, but mm. it's no less human, yeah. you know, it's no less uh, grounded than anything else. So it's nice to see that being explored on screen uh like in a film like annette as well yeah know? yeah it's really nice no it's cool like i say it's it's a certain age we're in and you know you can you know cut through cliches you know, if you want to and um kind of you know re-establish a humanism a modernism almost uh with the way you treat uh scenes and and um moments of of love but it's it's an interesting topic for sure because, yeah, we've all seen the cliches over and over and uh, it's, I don't know, I guess, you know, me basing it in tangible reality in the country town and, and then in the Adelaide city as well, it kind of gives it a, a freshness, I think. So with that in mind, let's talk about Stirling because it is such a visually striking place. What was the decision behind shooting it there and presenting that place on screen? Uh, well, firstly, uh, I, I did kind of respond to Stirling uh, as a town myself when I first discovered it about, 
um, seven, eight years ago, because my wife is from the Adelaide Hills and I've always been like in Melbourne, a Melbourne person. And, and then we lived in Greece for a while. And, but for the past six years, uh, we've been living in Adelaide and, and, you know, most country towns are pretty standard and some could be pretty awful, but Sterling just has uh, this kind of quality to it where the landscape is such that it's really interesting, you know, littered with trees and, and laneways. And, and, and there's, I've heard that there's a rule that for businesses, they can't have any big signs like McDonald's or anything. In fact, there's no McDonald's. There's no kind of overly commercial uh, places like that in the town. And kind of, for me, it's a real alternative area because, you know, there's artists there and, and yeah, there's like cafes and bookstores and, and yeah, where you, where you find cafes and bookstores together, that's, that, that kind of means something. Uh, it's, it's also got a, you know, swish modern hotel and a few other things, but of course it's known as a tourist attraction because of its autumnal leaves, uh, which I feature in my film as well. How could one not? And apparently Sterling has not been featured in any films um, from what the locals tell me, so which surprises me a bit, but there you go. It's a surprising thing, isn't it? Like Australian suburbia, at least modern Australian suburbia or regional areas, usually aren't presented on screen all that often. We've, we're still leaning into doing the landmarks or the same kind of regional towns, you know, the, the dusty streets and things like mm -hmm. that, because... It almost feels like that's an expected thing. So it's really comforting to be able to see these beautiful trees, this this very mm. community-driven town. That It feels organic and it feels real because it is, of course. Yeah. But to present that on screen gives it an energy and a life that is we so rarely get to see. I, I really appreciate oh, cool. it. Yeah, yeah excellent. Mm -hmm. I'm curious as well, like, Moving into Adelaide, have you noticed a sense of what it means to be an Adelaide filmmaker? I've talked to a few different Adelaide filmmakers this year, and one of the things which I've noted in some capacity is seeing uh, that there is a focus on creativity and ingenuity that, in a way that pushes outside the box. And I'm thinking of filmmakers like Indiana Bell and Josiah Allen, who their films are very sound-driven and... Mm -hmm pushing the boundaries of what an oral aspect of a film can be. But there, there really seems to be this drive from Adelaide-based filmmakers to put themselves on the map in a way that other Australian filmmakers aren't doing. Have you noticed anything like that at all in your capacity? Perhaps. I guess there's always that tension because, you know, Adelaide's not a big city like Melbourne or Sydney and it's not known uh, for its film work as such and... Uh, and, and I think it makes the filmmakers want to stand out a bit and do something unusual. There's there's also precedence, like there's, you know, Rolf De Heer's films, Eric, even Warwick Thornton, who's connected to Adelaide, and and we see those two figures and how they push boundaries and, and explore things um, in interesting ways that it might inspire other people. But there seems to be, yeah, a lot of kind of thriller horror filmmakers here. And there's also a, like a little bit of an underground, but the underground can't get very far, it seems, because um, like the Mercury Cinema, the main kind of art kind of cinema, you know, which has always housed the Media Resource Centre in, in Adelaide um, for, you know, resources for filmmakers, 
it, it, it's a bit safe with its programming, but I think it's also because the population is limited. So the audience numbers they would get in, I mean, they can, like, they would put on, I remember five years ago, five, six years ago, I think, I think it was in a Neil Corton Wilson film, uh, Ruin, and only a handful of people were in the cinema, you know, and and I think there's been other cases like, you know, Ted Wilson's film, the, the Tasmanian one, or Alina Lodkina with her first film. I think, uh, although that one I think got screened in Adelaide, but there's been, you know, I've tried to, you know, push for them to screen some of these films and they never want to take them up. And I think probably because, you know, the distributor involved is probably asking for a minimum, you know, guarantee of whatever amount. And they, you know, cinema knows it can't really uh, uh, deal with that. But there is something about Adelaide and its filmmakers, there's no doubt. And Unfortunately, some people, you know, will move to Melbourne uh, or or elsewhere even. And even Tim Carlia, who made uh, Paco, um, he's now in London and he wants to maybe see if he can stay there and, and do a Lanthimos or something and make films from there. So who knows? It's uh, But it really should kind of brew something individual if it can Adelaide that's the challenge and I think it always fails to rise to that challenge in terms of the structures involved like the uh, SAFC and, and the Mercury and just needs the program works that are a little edgier so there's a couple of things on the horizon that are getting some funding a couple of younger filmmakers and and that's pretty exciting uh, so yeah let's see what happens yeah there is a sense of commonality that I have with Adelaide in the sense that Perth also mm, gets yes. either overlooked. We're a small place. Audiences don't tend to go and see as many, uh, I don't know, if edgy or risky or whatever um, films that they should do. But it's like I watched Paco at Revelation Film Festival, mm. one of my favorite films of the year. I think it's absolutely brilliant. Mm. But there was a handful of people in the audience and it should be something that I guess a bit like what you do with uh, Pure Shit as well. There's this sense of trying to push for trying to regain the sense of pride in Australian cinema in trying to instill that in audiences and, and make sure that people have a recognition of what is at stake that might be lost, I guess is some way of putting it. And I don't think we're ever going to lose Australian cinema at all, but it does have a chance of becoming so underground that it's hard to come out. And in Perth mm. and Adelaide, I, I feel that is a sense, uh, which is really disappointing because there's great films that deserve audiences, that deserve the warmth of a cinema and feeling a group of, of people in the cinema. Yeah. But with that said, like Melbourne has a great scene, you know, there that, that appreciates yeah, Melbourne Australia. has a great scene, but the, MIF still um, goes a bit conservative when it comes to selecting a, a lot of these more indie films. So you get Revelation having, you know, I mean, Revelation doesn't try and present commercial films. There might be a couple here and there, but, um, and Adelaide has a little bit of a mix. It, it is commercial films, but they will let the indies kind of in uh, sometimes. Uh, whereas MIF, you know, used to really champion that, that more underground uh, independent cinema of Australia. It used to do that a lot in the 90s up to the mid zeros, and then it stopped doing that, unfortunately. Yeah, I think what you're talking about is basically diversity. You know, it's basically uh, allowing spaces for really kind of low-budget films, unless they're absolute trash and 
a bit amateurish. And but then again, I love a certain kind of amateur low budget one scene as well. But uh, but you know, there should just be spaces, you know, for it in in the major film festivals. And also for but the the nice thing at the moment is that uh, cinemas are doing deals with indie filmmakers, like we saw with Platon Theodorus uh, with his film. Um, touring it uh, with Q&As uh, through all of Australia. And he had about 15, 20 of these. And uh, so at least cinemas can hold these special Q&A, one-off Q&A screenings uh, of films. And that's something. And I think then it might come down to official databases and registrars. And like the, 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 book, the book that you write is valuable here too. So you kind of mix all kinds of different films in there and it legitimizes those more underground indie films and it's it's an interesting topic with that in mind what's it mean to you to be part of the adelaide film festival it's got to be pretty exciting yeah it is it is um mainly because this is where the film was made so my, my film was actually rejected by MIF. it could have had the world premiere there um but having it uh, in adelaide is actually great because it's it's a film made in Adelaide. It makes perfect sense. And so for the cast and crew to have a nice big screening first and and then I can, you know, kind of uh, have more screenings after that, whatever I can get in other states, overseas, uh, whatever. Yeah, as we were talking about, like, the major film festivals. Yeah, it is. I mean, I've I've been in them in the past, but increasingly the features I make, you know, don't get selected by MIF or... And certainly I don't even try anymore with Sydney Film Festival. And I think even Rev has uh, rejected a, my last couple of features or certainly my last one in Made in Greece called Songs of Revolution. And so, you know, to be able to get into this kind of space of a, of a more established film festival, again, it's those kind of stupid things like it that legitimises uh, the film somehow, which is a... It's a bit silly because, as you're saying, you know, these films are real anyway and why can't we just have slots for them and why can't we treat them? Probably leads me on to talking about the referendum, but I won't, won't go there. Why can't we treat them as equal, you know? With that in mind as well, you had a retrospective of your work earlier in the year. What was that experience like for you to be able to screen your work to an audience. Oh, yeah, that was pretty amazing. And, you know, hats off to Adrian Danks, Michael Collar, everyone else at um, Melbourne Cinematheque for putting on, like, um, like a tribute to me in a way, um, you know, playing two features and four shorts and and discussing. Uh, Adrian Danks gave a great introduction where we discussed my achievements over the last 40 years. And, it is really nice, and, and I wasn't expecting it. It's not like I was saying to to Adrian Danks, uh, hey, you want to put my films on? I wasn't doing that at all. But so I've always respected the Cinematheque because that was my film school. You know, I didn't go to university. I didn't do cinema studies. I didn't do filmmaking. I just went there and watched films, my first, you know, Bressons and Goddards and whatever. So for them to give me a nice little tribute like that, uh, it was really nice, and and yeah, the cinema was pretty full, which, which surprised me a bit. You never know what kind of audience you're going to get sometimes, and um, it was a nice moment. But hopefully, I've still got another ten or twenty years of filmmaking ahead of me. 
I'm certain you will. Yeah, I'm certain you will. But you talk about like the importance of having a Cinematheque. Again, I feel so envious of, uh, you know, Melbourne in some capacities because for Perth, like a lot of the films, you know, we either have to import them like the, you know, I've got the Agnes Varda set. I had to import that because otherwise I would have no way of actually mm-hmm. watching her films. But the Cinematheque actually shows those films in a capacity that it should be screened, like with an audience, with a receptive place that encourages the discussion. Whereas for me, like, you know, when I finish off watching something, I turn to my dog and I say, well, that was lovely. (laughs) And that's the conversation that I have, you know, and it's, it's so dry. And I miss that. I, I wish we had that because that's a lot. That is how a lot of people get their film education and film culture nowadays, uh, through experiencing, you know, those kinds of discussions. It's so valuable. Yes, it is. And, and it's good if the discussions are not all online, uh, that it's not, all, you know, letterboxed and, and whatever, that it's actually people in front of you and just being there, you know, in a space with people, it really is something. And like, it's no surprise that like the AFL, for example, has got bumper crowds this year. I know it's post COVID and everything, but I don't think that matters. I think people are excited to physically be in a real space and and experience that atmosphere and sometimes yeah at melbourne cinematheque and MIF, yeah you just have great moments of not not that i really believe in communal you know being one of the crowd you know i think it's good to be an individual within the crowd and still part you know get the energy and atmosphere of that crowd but to still think for yourself and feel for yourself what what it is that the relationship you're having with what's presented but yeah it's uh, melbourne is just a, a great city in that regard it's the artistic capital of australia and I'm, I, I'm a believer in keeping films alive in the cinemas um like i do with my unknown pleasures uh, screenings in melbourne we have the 57 seat cinema thornbury picture house and once a month we try and put something on so it's good can you talk about that as well? Because the films that you select are so wonderful too. Again, it's another avenue that I'm like, ah, oh, if I should move to Melbourne, but it's too costly. I so know. I mean, my co-curator Chris Luskri and I just really love uh, Melbourne independent cinema from like the beginning, from like the fifties, um, with a few kind of stray examples and uh, Giorgio Mangiamelli in the sixties, and and we, we understand that at the moment, the past ten, twenty years, especially the past ten years. It, it's very much a, a now culture that we're in and the historical valuing or, or just, you know, recognition and screening of films from the past just isn't there as much. And it's and you'd think that it would be because things are streamed and on DVD, Blu-ray, but it's actually not. It's so much geared towards what's current. And, and where, I guess, where concerned that some of these filmmakers are are just going to go to their graves feeling forgotten, like like, uh, Bert Dealing, who made the film Pure Shit, who, you know, only made, that was made in 1975, he only made one feature after that, and, you know, he ended up just being a recluse for his last years, and so, you know, we try and celebrate some of our elders, some of the people we know in their 80s now, like Ivan Gahl, and we're going to do a presentation for John Flaus when he turns 90 in April of next year. And and there's other people, Peter Tammer, there's a whole stack of uh, independent filmmakers in Melbourne from the 60s and 70s 
who just deserve a, a little bit of recognition, a bit of a tribute to them, you know, later on in their lives when they've maybe stopped making films for the last 20, 30 years. So, yeah, we enjoy, and, and we enjoy putting on some contemporary films as well that uh, no one else will put on. And and I think we we were the ones that kind of broke uh, Matthew Victor Pastor, for example, a little bit. Um, I think, I, think I, I, I put on a couple of screenings of his features and, since then, yeah, like Rev has come to the party a bit and uh, some overseas festivals and still not Miff, which is damning for them that in his hometown of Melbourne, Miff have not put one of his films on. But anyway, so Chris and I try and do what we can for this kind of culture of the more alternative cinema. And I, th I think it was through your screenings that I became aware of Matthew's work as yeah. well. And Neon Across the Ocean was the first one that I watched. And, you know, he's such an expressive and fantastic filmmaker and such a lovely person as well. But yeah. it's, it's that importance of making sure that it's not just the George Millers and, you know, Fred Skepsis and all that kind of stuff of the Australian cinema past that are recognised. Yeah. And they had their value, of course, and importance. Mm. But there is a whole legion of Australian filmmakers who tend to be forgotten in a, in a modern sensibility. Yeah. So it's, it's great that you're, you know, putting a spotlight on them in some capacity. Mm. Um, it's a huge service that you're doing. Yeah. yeah congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. What does Australian presenting Australian culture on screen? What does that mean to you uh, as both a filmmaker and somebody who writes about I think, it? I think it's something that uh, honors the, the place we're in and the, the culture um, that we have and that we live through and that we grapple with. And even Matthew Victor Pastor with his studies of racism, you know, it, like it's, it's important that uh, these kind of struggles and tensions get put on the screen. If a filmmaker can be, you know, brave and not uh, sugarcoat um, certain social and political issues, uh, like I love the work, uh, going back to Indigenous culture a bit, the work of the Caribbean um, Film Collective in Alice Springs. Um, you know, they present Indigenous life so in such a raw way uh, and natural way that it's, it's great that that's on film and that it's not just Rolf to his films, although his films actually are really fantastic with Dave Coppola. And... I guess, yeah, we just try and, you know, honour the place we're in and not make, uh, you know, Im imitation American films or uh, even imitation European ones, although I've just made one. <laughs> but, of course, it's got an Australian kind of country town twist to it. So, <laughs> yeah, so it is kind of important and not just, not just to have your head, you know, geared to world cinema which can seem so rich and, and lush compared to Australian cinema um, and much more radical and much more alive and, and all these things. I think you still have to, you know, honour the place that you're, that you're on. That's been a wonderful conversation. It's been great to be able to finally talk to you about your work and uh, both film sense and, and what you do in a, a writing sense and supporting Australian cinema. You are somebody I look up to and, and respect so deeply. So thank you very much oh, for your you, time Andrew. and for what you do yeah, as well. Nice words, I appreciate it. Yeah, congratulations to you too, because what you do is uh, really terrific. Um, there's no doubt about it. And 